This month we're speaking about the commitment of God's call to service. See, God has a plan for every human being, but this first plan is that they be saved, that they have their sins forgiven and that uh, they are reconciled with God. The Bible tells us before we know Jesus, we are aliened from him. We're strangers from him. We're not very far off. We can come to him real quickly through his son, Jesus Christ. But the first thing God wants for all of us is to be saved. Now, this room this morning, I don't know that about you. You don't know that about me. It's one of those things that we, um, we, uh, we only God knows for sure. You and God know about you. You can know. The Bible says, these things that are written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have everlasting life. Every once in a while, someone will say to me, well, Pastor, you can't know for sure you're going to heaven. But the Bible tells me I can. He tells me I can know. And if you're here today and you're wondering about that, God's will for your life is that you would know that you have everlasting life. And that life is in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not hard to be saved. God does all the work. He's the one who sent his son. He's the one who saw us in our sin and commended or proved his love toward us. He's the one who provides eternal life. He's the one who's preparing a place for us. It's his provocation. It's his grace. It's his spirit. It's his word that brings the gospel to us. But after we're saved, we're not just saved to go to heaven. Uh, if that were the case, as soon as you're saved, God would just check you out and send you on to heaven. There's a purpose for our existence after we're saved. That purpose, I believe, is service and worship of our God. It is spending time with him and serving with him as well. We have two sisters in the Bible, Mary and Martha. Mary was a very hard working. She was a busy person. I'm sorry, Martha was. And Mary, equally hardworking, but when Jesus was there, she spent time in worship. And their little story there reminds us that worship precedes working. Yes, we're supposed to work with God, but we have to develop a walk with him. And I think not only do we need to be saved, we need to be sanctified, separated unto God, worshiping him, and then doing something with him. Uh, the first Corinthians chapter three, we're labors together with God. Well, God's calling us is, I think, to serve with him. We're saved to serve. We're saved to worship. And there ought to be something everybody does for the Lord. The stories in their Bible are stories of people that God called out to serve. He came to some fishermen on the earth. Lord Jesus said, follow me and I will make you. Fishers of men. Elisha, Elisha was plowing with his oxen when the Lord called him. And usually God finds busy people doing things, and he says he enlists them into service. One of those men is Moses. Moses was a Hebrew boy. He was a third child of the union of Amron and Jochebed. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 9, their names are given. They're not given in our passage that we here have here today. But Moses' dad, his name was Amran, and his, his mother's name was Jochebed. They were born in Egypt. They're Hebrews, but the Egyptians stayed there for over 400 years. In Genesis chapter 15 and verse number 13, 
The Lord told Abraham when he would start the, the Jewish lineage, he said, my people are going to need to go to a country that is a stranger to them for 400 years. And while they're there, he's going to deliver them. And that's exactly what God did. He gave them a promise. They would go. They would be delivered from them. Well, the book of Genesis is the first book of our Bible, and it tells us how God started two things. Number one, the human race with Adam and Eve. And then how he started the Hebrew race with Abraham and Sarah. At the conclusion of Genesis, Abraham and, uh, and uh, Jacob, his son, now Jacob has 70 descendants. And God miraculously puts Joseph in Egypt as a prime minister. And uh, whenever his, his other brothers and sister brothers found out he was there, and no doubt Dinah found out, and Dad found out, they wanted to come. And they said, man, uh, Joseph is alive. Joseph is longing for us to come. And Dad, Joseph is loaded. <laughs> He's the prime minister of, of Egypt. He's, he's world-renowned. He's got all the money we need. He's going to send the wagons uh, full of provisions and to transport us. And when Jacob saw the wagons, he knew there was something up. And he moved 70 descendants into Egypt. And they stayed there for 400 years. And maybe some folks think of 430 years. But it starts getting really hairy, difficult to be a Hebrew because they grew and God obviously blessed them. And even in Egypt, a very, a very prominent place, a world leader at the time, while they were there, they were a small group compared to the Egyptians. I think about even I've been to Egypt maybe 10, 11 times. And uh, Cairo itself has over 26 million people just in the capital. It's got a lot of people, but I'm sure back then many people. Some folks believe when it came time for the Israelites to leave with Moses, uh, there were as many as almost 2 million Hebrews. And a mixed multitude, people who believed with them, went with them. So it was a lot of people. But during this difficult time, another king rose up and a Pharaoh came that did not care or know about Joseph. And he began to see the, 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 the prominence and the success and the multiplication of the Jewish people. And he says, we've got to stop them. We've got to take care of them because if not, one day the other leagues of our enemies will ask them to join with us and we'll have a mole within us. We'll have problems here. So we have to stifle them. And so they begin to give them taskmasters. They begin to enslave them and take away their own freedom and use them to build their cities. But that wasn't good enough. The more they oppressed them, the more that uh, they grew. So the Pharaoh at the time decided, I think I want to do here. And of course, in the Bible, Egypt is a type of the world. Pharaoh is a type of Satan. But Pharaoh decided that he was going to kill every boy baby. He would do it the first way with contacting the two midwives who were overseeing the births of the Israelite ladies. And so when a Hebrew woman would have a baby, if it was a boy, they were instructed by Pharaoh to kill the boy but keep the girls alive. He wanted to destroy the young men. 
And that's, uh, that was the plan. The, the, the girls who were the, the midwives of the doulas, they said, no, we're not doing that. And when he called them in and said, hey, I told you to kill the boys, you're still letting them live. He said, look, the girls and the Hebrews are a lot more livelier and they're smart. They just quit calling us and they have their own babies without us. So he went ahead and decided to get a decree out that every little boy baby that was born, he would put them into the Nile River, would cast them, take them from the arms of no doubt, screaming and crying mothers and throw them into the river and successfully killed many Hebrew little boys. As a result of that, of course, one little boy was born. His birth name was probably not Moses, but he, was, he had an older sister, Miriam, and he had an older brother, Aaron. And Amran and Jochebed conceived, and they had a little boy. I wonder if uh, Jochebed would have maybe said, Lord, could you make this a little girl? <laughs> I can't imagine this taking this baby. But when that baby was born, Mama said he was a goodly child. There was something special about him. And so she hid him as successfully as she could, and as long as she could, and she did so for 90 days, three months. I don't know how you did that, but I'm sure that was a challenge. Probably a gag order was in session there. I'm sure when he cried, no, no, honey, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you can't. I can't let people know that you're a little boy baby and you've been born. But after three months, she knew that maybe she had the police come by and question her or Amram or Miriam or Aaron or ask questions. She knew that she didn't have much chance to preserve his life much longer herself. And providentially, she built an ark, a little floating bassinet. She pitched it with like what we would say, you know, the tar or asphalt that would put, she pitched it so it would not seep water. And she put it strategically in the Nile River and posted her daughter Miriam there and said, I want you to put it down there. And I know that the Pharaohs, looks like the, the queen or the, the princesses, probably were much more open than they were today. But she said, I know that she goes down there. I want you to float it down, and let's let the grace of God help us. I don't know where Jochebed went. I, maybe she went back to her room to pray, earnestly plead that God would have mercy. But she lets this little guy go in this bassinet and puts Miriam down, down the creek a ways or down the river bank. And then the, the Pharaoh's daughter sees the baby and, and sees the, the floating bassinet and calls it to come over. When she opens it, Moses begins to cry. And the Bible says that the heart of compassion was had in that lady. Maybe she was a, a girl who couldn't have children. I don't know. But she knew instantly it wasn't an Egyptian. It was one of the Hebrew boys. She knew what was going on, seemed to know that, that uh, it, was a, it was an attempt to spare the life of a Hebrew little boy. And she felt that she was going to do it, and she did. She called it over, she brought them in, she saw the baby, and then Miriam, her, his oldest sister, runs up to him, and I don't know how old she is at the time. She would be alive years later when Moses is 80 years old to be able to travel in the wilderness, so probably not too much older than him. 
But she would go with him. She would come and she said, I see you got the baby. Would you want me to find a nurse, someone that could breastfeed the baby? We've got a whole bunch of girls who lost their boys. Would you want me to go find a nurse from the Hebrew ladies that could do it? Of course, Miriam knew what nurse that would be. Be Moses' own mom. She said, go, get her. Then she introduced him to the baby. Well, of course, the baby was her baby. How much everyone knows, the Bible's not clear about. But they began that process of weaning that little boy, feeding that little boy. Pharaoh's daughter paid Jochebed to, to raise her own child until he was weaned and then, do it, and then gave it to Pharaoh's daughter. And he was raised there. He was raised with the best education. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 7 that he was mighty in word and in deed. Even prior to his appointment to lead the people of God, his little excuse about I'm not able to talk probably wasn't legitimate. <clears throat> he was trained in Egyptians' universities. He had the best of culture and understanding and finances. And yet the Bible tells us that it doesn't give us much about his childhood. There's a lot of similarities between Jesus and Moses in a way. But there's not much about his childhood. We know that he moved back in to Pharaoh's daughters. But something happened. By the way, Amram and Jochebed did some very smart things in that early life of their son. That every parent ought to get, a, get their bell rung about doing that while your child is young. He always knew in the back of his head he was an Egyptian. He knew that he was special. He knew that he was a Hebrew. He knew that he was that way. I don't know if the Pharaoh's daughter told him about it. She named him Moses because she took him from the water. It was a name that it was given to him seemingly by Pharaoh's daughter and his mom to be that would raise him. You know the story for... For most of his life and 40 years of his life, he was there and, and probably the next man up to do something of administrative work in Egypt. But then he came to himself and realized that, that to, to choose the riches of Christ is greater than the treasures of Egypt. He came to a prudent decision in his mind and a public proclamation that I'm not them. I wasn't made for this country. I was made for God. I'm a Hebrew. But he jumped the gun and prematurely declared himself, even though God had called him and God was going to use them, he, he put himself out there. He saw an Egyptian man beating one of his Hebrew brothers. And thinking that they would side with him, in Acts chapter 7, you can read it again, in, in Stephen's declaration before he was stoned, he tells the story of Moses, and he said he thought his brethren would, would just say, oh, Moses is with us now, we can trust him. He thought this was his time, his coming out, that he was going to be God's man to help his people, but it was premature. God had called him, but it wasn't time yet. One of the more frustrating things that people struggle with, I struggle with, is timing. If you ever see, if you read the Bible, you're going to find out that God is not in a hurry. God has time. 
He knows what time is in Galatians chapter 6, or chapter 4, I think, the Bible says, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son. I love that verse because it reminds me that God knows what time it is. Some of you, you're thinking, man, I think He's late. I've been waiting so long. Well, Moses may have felt that, so he sees this, this Egyptian guy whacking on this Hebrew man and his taskmaster, and he takes his life. He kills the Egyptian. Thinking it was done in secret, he buried the Egyptian. The next day he went out and he sees two of his Hebrew brothers fighting each other. That guy's knocking off. And one of them smarted off and said, hey, listen, who made you king? Who made you our boss? Hey, who fell off their throne and put you in front of it? You're not our boss. What are you going to do? Kill me like you did the guy you killed yesterday? And realize very quickly, oh, man, that was not done in secret. By the way, nothing's done in secret. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The ways of men are before the eyes of the Lord. And he pondereth all is going. Nothing's done in secret. He realized real quickly, hang on a second, what I did yesterday that I thought no one saw... Somebody saw and the words on the street. And it got to the Pharaoh at the time, probably not his father or grandfather, probably the next Pharaoh. He's now 40 years old. Just like when I was, uh, when I was, uh, I'm 53, when I was 13, we had a different president. We've had several different presidents since then. No doubt there have been several different Pharaohs who've come along. But when the Pharaoh heard about it, he said, you know, I'm going to kill that guy. If he's going to kill an Egyptian, we're going to kill him. And he took, took, takes off and he goes to Midian. In Midian, there he goes and, he, and he, 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 he's tired. He's going as far away to get away from the long arm of the Egyptians. And he sits by a well. And God sends seven daughters of the priest of Midian, Ruel or later on maybe Jethro, or I don't know if it's the same guy. I'm not very positive about that. But these seven girls who watch sheep for their dad, have to come to this watering hole, this well, but they always have to compete with the other shepherds of the, the nomadic people there. And so they usually have to wait till the last ones. And, but when they went there, Moses was there, and he pooled the water for them, helped them water all their, their, their sheep. And sure enough, whenever it's all done, uh, they take off and thank him and appreciative and they got home and dad says, good night girls, you're home off early. Why are you home early? And we had, didn't have a fight at the well today. We didn't have a fight. We didn't have to wait. Well, what happened? Well, this Egyptian guy was there sitting in the well and he made it possible for us to get in. They got, they got taken care of and that's why we got home early. It's been really nice. He said, well, where is this guy? Why'd you leave him at the well? Bring him home. They went back and got him, and the Bible says that Moses was content to live with that man, and he gave her, Sipporah, his daughter, to wife. They have one child, Geshem, which means a foreigner, living outside of his comfort zone, living outside of his place. And he stays there, and he raises children, and raises sheep, and watches sheep until, you know, the burning bush and the call of God to go back. It's an amazing story how God used Moses. But he called him to do something special. I want to just take a couple thoughts, and our time is going by very quickly, but I want to make you a couple applications. First of all, I want you to notice here the precarious days, the precarious days of Egypt. You know, it's, it's not an easy day. 
in Egypt at the time that Moses comes. And it's not an easy day in our world either. And God, the darker the night, the brighter his light shines. God knows what time it is, and, and we really have an easy walk right now in America. We've got all kinds of problems, and we can spend our, our, whole, our whole Sunday talking about all the problems. But I will say this, we got a lot easier than the people in Miramar today. Got a lot, of pe- a lot easier than the people in Venezuela today. At this time, we're better than they. But it is precarious times. The Bible tells us in first, Second Timothy chapter 3, this know also that in the last days, perilous times shall come. And boy, it lays out a list of things that looks like you're reading the USA Today right here in America. Lovers of their own selves, pleasures, haters of God, disobedient to parents, all the things that we see. It's a difficult day. But don't you notice, too, you got Pharaoh's decree. He's trying to kill and destroy young men. You know somebody else who tried to do that in Jesus' time? Herod, that's a satanic tactic, trying to destroy young men. Every young man, look up here, listen to me. Those of you who have grandchildren that are young men, those of you who are parents of young men, you ought to listen very carefully because your son has a target on him very exclusively. He's trying to get the young men angry, abusive, uh, addicted, Get them just disengaged. Get them more concerned about a stupid video game. Playing games and foolishness. And there's nothing wrong with a video game in and of itself, but it gets taken over. It becomes all-consuming. That's all they think about. Nothing wrong with a phone, but when your phone is just everything is about your phone. Something's wrong there. Life is not about a phone. Life is not about a game. It's not about a video game. It's not about getting uh, accolades from people. But just like Pharaoh was trying to destroy young men, that's a tactic that's going on right now. Getting you bitter, angry, blending the sexes. The young men no longer, it just seems like they're every, uh, so many are just soft. Dressing like girls, girls dressing like young men, blending the unisex movement. We heard about it years ago. We said amen years ago. It's, it, people would roll in their grave who were preaching years ago if they saw what we see today. Skinny jeans and, and effeminate lifestyles and hair colorings and all the things. And uh, some of, these, some of the, the folks today, they've got like a Mr. T starter kit going on in their nose and their head and their ears. And just, just, just trying to blend in, trying to figure out what this world has and copying. And they, they act like they want to be individuals, but actually they're just copycats. But it's a satanic ploy of our society and the insecurity oftentimes and the lack of purpose that a young man has. And Satan is not necessarily getting them before they're two years old and having someone throw them in a river, but he's taking them through their adolescence and causing greater destruction for those that pass on after them. It's a miserable thing. And by the way, I, I, I see that there's precarious days. There is a Pharaoh's decree. But I also see that there's apparent parental dedication. Two little parents, Amran and Jacob, had rigor, figured out something. Our kid's special. 
By the way, every kid is special. There are no illegitimate children. There are illegitimate relationships, but no illegitimate children. God has a plan for your child. God has a plan for you as an adult. And if you think, well, no one cares about me, or my dad was a deadbeat dad, or he did not know how to love me, or didn't know how to lead me, and those kind of things, you can stop the cycle of your sin when your father and mother forsake you. The Lord will pick you up. He'll be a father to the fatherless. He'll help you. And those of you who have a good dad and a good mom, you're on a higher standard of accountability. To whom much is given, much is required. Some of our biggest louses are explain away their, their negligence and their stupidity on their parents who provided them an education, who provided them love and security and care. And maybe they weren't all that in a bag of chips, but they were a lot better than a lot of kids who've made a lot farther than you're going to go making excuses. The devil's after children, but thank God for parents who were dedicated. They were dedicated in several ways. I think, number one, they decided to protect their child, especially in those vulnerable years, those three months she, she protected him. While you have children that are young, that's an important time. The Bible says that we ought to chasten our child be times early on. Spend the time with them. Spend the energy with them. Mama, if you can be with your child in those early days, be with them. Live on less if you have to and give more time to the children that are there. Dad, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I think, I'm reading between the lines here, but I think... Uh, Moses' mom and dad certainly gave him a lot of information while they were weaning him, maybe up to the third or fourth year of his life. It put some real constitution in their heart, in his heart, an understanding. No matter what he heard at the university, no whatever, no whatever, Mister uh, Professor Big Bottom told them there. No matter whatever everybody else thought about. Something inside of him, he knew, he had a constitution, this is right, this is wrong. I'm not made for this world. I'm made for another. You can put all the Egyptian garb on me and you can give me the philosophy, but it doesn't jive with what I am and who I am. Boy, young people, you need to get a hold of that. So we take a little bit of time and think about this particular story. I want you just to say in closing this morning, we got difficult times, but the darker the night, the brighter the light. Would you say that little poem with me? The darker the, the brighter. God's doing something right now. In this dark day, God's alive. He's at work. He's not one bit surprised. He doesn't even have a headache. He knows what's going on, and we can trust him. Here's what we need to do. We need to decide, what, Lord, are you doing, and what do I need to do with you? What's my mentality? Why do I have this stage of life? Some of you are on the verge of retirement. Others of you, you've got to raise. Others of you, you've got decisions to make about what are you going to do? Are you going to move up? You're going to do this. You're going to go there. What you want to know is what does God want for me? What does he want me to do now, here and now, as there's a lot at stake here? We live in, in difficult times. We also know that Satan is after to destroy young men. God's used men, and of course, we, we're not talking, of any, talking down about the ladies. God uses ladies wonderfully. The whole Bible is full of beautiful stories of how God gives 
a great help to his people and to his work through precious ladies. But you see here that in Egypt there, they, they were all right with the girls. Don't, don't let the boys live. Satan tries that. He goes over that. But then we see some dedicated parents who decide, you know what? We're going we're gonna to do some things here with Moses. And it was risk-filled. It was faith-filled. It was trusting God that he was going to do something very special with this young man. As we think about a month of service and God's call, every one of you, God's calling. You need to pick up the phone. Well, no, God's not calling me. He's talking. Every one of us have a role that God wants us to do at any stage of life. Whether you're a teenager or you're a senior adult, there's something God wants us to do. And there's a big deal. This was a big deal. Everything that Amram and Jochebed did was a big deal that would, and it would materialize, friend, for another 80 years. He would be raised in Egypt. He would go to the backside of the desert and work with sheep. He would see a burning bush, and then on his 80th year of life, he would work his way back into Egypt. When God had done all that was needed to be done, the cry of the people was there, and he sent a deliverer right on time. They would take his people out of Egypt. There's something big going on, and I want to be a part of what God's doing. I don't want to be discouraged. I don't want to be uh, pulling our covers overhead and just saying, no, God didn't have a purpose in my life. He's got something for you to do. He's got something for me to do. And we need to dream big, and we need to say, God, what do you want for my life? How are you going to use? What do you want to do with our children and young people? Understand that there's a purpose for that. And I, I will say this in, in closing is that you're going to see definitely providential determination. How is it that just the, the, Pharaoh, the, Pharaoh shows, the Pharaoh's daughter shows up at the right time? Eighty years before, it would need to be delivered. But how, how does that happen? It's because God is providential. He loves, he orchestrates, he's working, and we can trust him. I heard this years ago, and it still rattles my cage every time I say it. I say it oftentimes on the radio. The most important thing about us is what comes to our mind when we think about the God of the Bible. Is he worthy? Is he faithful? Is he worthy of my praise? Is he worthy of my Sunday night? Is he worthy of my Wednesday? Is he worthy of my soul winning? Is he worthy of my giving? Is he worthy of my Bible time and my prayer time? Is he strong? Is he tough? Does he care about me? Does he love me? All of those things are so true about our God. Boy, I think it's a good thing for us to consider. I want to encourage you to think about this. And maybe in the next week or so, read Exodus 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and see some things about God that should impress you about the God that is then, that's the same yesterday, today, and 